This is an ABC podcast. Morning, Ann Jones here, and I've just come outside to fill up the bird baths. It's going to be a really hot day. It's already actually pretty hot. But I've had to whip the phone out and talk to you because I've found something really weird. There's a big line of ants, little ants, big line, going up a tree right next to the bird bath. And as they go up, they go to these other little insects out on the leafy bits. And they appear to be licking those insects' butts. I mean, arse-licking ants was not what I expected to find when I came out this morning, but there you go. That's nature for you. And might I say, what the duck? Welcome to What the Duck, where I try to auto-correct your assumptions about the world and nature. And today, we start with... Why are ants butt lickers? <laughs> I couldn't have put it better myself, Dr Brian Lessard, a.k.a. Bry the Fly Guy, entomologist, and the bloke who named those flies after Beyonce and RuPaul. Well... In nature, ants generally look anywhere for a really rich source of energy. And in this case, they love licking the butts of aphids. In particular, they love eating the honeydew that the aphid secretes. You could say that the ants absolutely buzz on eating this stuff. Yeah, so I think I was seeing perhaps some sort of scale insect, but the ants are known to lick up honeydew from all sorts of stuff, like caterpillars, mealybugs, but most commonly, aphids. Aphids are a plant-feeding insect, so they have a really strong straw-like mouth part that they can use to insert into a plant and slurp up the plant sap that's really high in sugar. And the aphid processes the sugar and excretes it out of their bum. And some aphids actually have a anal basket. So it's this specialised CT, hair-like CT, that forms a basket at the end of their bum that actually is designed to catch as much honeydew as they can. Because the more honeydew that an aphid can actually hold, the more likely they're going to attract a hungry ant. I I call it the ornate hairy anal basket, but I think the correct scientific name (laughs) is the trophobiotic organ. But baskets. That's the first time I've heard that. (laughs) That's just the weirdest thing. And sometimes these ants are impatient, so if there's not enough honeydew, they'll actually massage the aphid to express more honeydew as well. Okay. So, the ants pump the aphids so that they splurt sweet nectar stuff into the special basket at their anus. This is getting weird. But what is the aphid actually getting out of this whole thing? The ants will eat any other predators or deter them, like hoverfly larvae, caterpillar larvae, and even parasitoid wasps that might come by. So the aphid gets a bodyguard, essentially, Mm -hmm. and the ant gets sweet, sweet nectar on tap all day around. So what I've seen out in my garden is a tiny, teeny, eeny-weeny dairy farm. Out of the species that we do know of, scientists think that about 40% of all aphids in the world are actually farmed by ants, which is staggering. Insects are the OG farmers of the world, definitely. 
Ooh, someone call Landline because we've got a throwdown from Bry the Fly Guy. OG farmers, ants. About 10,000 years ago, different parts of the world, Far East. I reckon I've seen a heap of docos and articles that point to the start of agriculture being in the fertile crescent, that sort of present day Iraq, where they started to harvest and plough to domesticate all of it. And the minute you get the beginnings of agriculture, you get a totally new pattern of life. With more food came more time for culture. You know, soccer matches, soy sauce in little fish bottles, religions, croissants, science, songs, and eventually late-stage capitalism and trickle-down economics. Agriculture actually has a lot to answer for. Develop the art of deliberately growing their food supplies in one place. But sorry, Richard Leakey, paleoanthropologist from the past, if you think that farming on Earth started in the Fertile Crescent, you were wrong. They were putting aside preserved foods for the future so that people could have grain uh, later in the year, grind it into flour and have that food right through the year. Because I've listened to what Bruce Pascoe's been telling us, that the first Australians were way out in front of the agricultural wave of the Northern Hemisphere. We know that one of them was 32,000 years old, and that's just one stone, and there's been very little study of their age. The potential is that they could be 40,000 years old, and even at 32,000 years, turning grain into flour is 15,000 years before the Egyptians tried it. World's first bakers. Oh, right, yeah, the world's first bakers. Farming, storing, grinding their grains. But despite how frickin' amazing this is, the traditional owners of Australia were far from the first farmers on Earth. Nowhere near it. I'm currently a postdoctoral research fellow. No, James Bickerstaff isn't the oldest farmer either. But he's been studying some beetles that may well be... ...Institute for the Environment. ...Ambrosia beetles. We think they started farming about 86 million years ago. That's the first domestication event of a fungus happened. And some of these species are about 96 million years old. And so it's safe to assume that they started farming close to 100 million years ago. The world's first farmers could have been these little beetles and their crop is a fungus. And we have heaps of these farming ambrosia beetles that are native to Australia. It's just that you probably have never seen one. They get to a maximum size of about 16 millimetres long, light brown to dark brown, and they're all living in trees or tree parts where they construct little nests or galleries. Now, I'm just going to have to pause here because there is a, mm-hmm. a jumping spider crawling all over my microphone and I just need to move him because he's completely <laughs> distracting me. Just uh, I've got to take my headphones off to move him outside. Just hold, bear with me, everyone. All right. Weird taxonomic fact, ambrosia beetles are a little bit odd. They occur across like 16 families in the tree of life and the thing that brings them together isn't their sort of genetic closeness, it's the crop they farm, the ambrosia fungus. Sorry about that interlude. Um, um, Okay. Right, so where were we? Ah yes, ambrosia beetles and their life inside trees. The typical life of an ambrosia beetle is a male will find a tree and he will start constructing a little tunnel into the tree and then he'll hang out at that entrance and release pheromones to attract a female. Pretty sure this is the ambrosia beetle equivalent of a teenage boy spraying lynx in the general vicinity to attract a girl towards his fungus crop. 
the female and sometimes the male will start growing the fungal garden, which they'll eat. The mated pair will typically remain in this tunnel system. And then you'll get multiple generations of offspring. So this system of tunnels through the heart of trees is the place where they live and also where they plant their fungus. The ambrosia fungus itself is typically grown as a mat, just covering the walls. And what's really interesting is that a lot of this fungus is quite sweet smelling as well. I was working on some ambrosiella fungus in my PhD. It's not like ripe bananas, which was a very interesting flavor profile for this fungus. <laughs> and so whenever I would open up my fungal culture box, the whole room would just smell of bananas. <laughs> wow. Now, for most gardeners, you need some tools, right? You need spades and rakes and maybe a wheelbarrow for when you need to transport a plant from one place to the other. But obviously beetles can't have a wheelbarrow, right? Most, if not all, ambrosia beetles have a specialised organ called a mycangium, or plural mycangia. And this organ is used to store fungal spores or fungal masses. And so they will put the spores or masses into this mycangium. And then when they leave and construct a new gallery, they'll inoculate using the mycangia. Essentially, when they want to move house, they take a bunch of seeds inside their body in a specialised organ and they're ready to plant it out when they find a new farm. Some ambrosia beetles, especially the zillabarines, they can't really control the growth of the fungal mass in their body, apparently. And so if you just leave a, one of these little zillabarine ambrosia beetles on a petri dish, the fungus will just grow out of control outside of the body, which apparently is crazy to watch. The life of invertebrates is scarier than an alien invasion sci-fi movie, I swear. Having an organ in your body that stores the spores of your favourite banana-scented fungus, but then all of a sudden the spores start growing maniacally from within and blast your body apart, splurting barney banana brains all over the place. It's pretty dark. Not least of all because they spend 99.9% of their life inside a tree. And what's really, really interesting is that we have a species in Australia called Ostroplatypus. Nothing to do with the duck-billed platypus. A queen of this gallery she will live up to about 40 years old. Holy shit, 40 years. Yep, 40 years, a single individual. She's about 3.5 millimetres long, 40 years old. Yeah, tiny. And sort of the opposite of what we assume, you know, bigger body equals longer lifespan. But even this oldest little beetle in Australia is nowhere near as old as... I'm Megan Fredrickson. Not Megan Fredrickson. Professor of ecology but some of the farming communities that she studies. The of Toronto. They're called, wait for it, <clears throat> Devil's Gardens. I was actually an undergraduate student working on a research project in the Peruvian Amazon. Usually when you're walking around in the Amazon, it's, it's a bit like bushwhacking. There's lots of undergrowth and lots of different tree species. Basically, everywhere you look, each plant is a different species. That's until you fight your way through to something more open. The forest floor is generally bare. It's really weird, almost like it's been mulched on purpose with dead leaves. It doesn't have any other plants growing in it. There are trees, just one species. They can grow to maybe 10 metres tall. But they're way shorter than the surrounding forest. Which is usually, you know, 25 metres or more in height. 
It, it looks like you've walked out into a plantation or an orchard. Looks like something has deliberately planted or, or, or created one of these gardens. It looks like, like somebody is, is busy farming there. Aliens, it's gotta be aliens. And the people living in that part of Peru called these patches of forests Devil's Gardens because they're named after an evil forest spirit who's supposed to make children get lost in the woods and cause all kinds of mischief. And the legend goes that this evil forest spirit, the Chuyachaki, lives in these patches, these kind of orchards within this otherwise very hyper-diverse tropical rainforest. And I started to get interested in what does create these patches, if not the Chuyachaki, and I started to get interested in the ants that lived in the stems in these trees, thinking that they might have something to do with it. And Megan's gut instinct, not mine, was right. It was the ants who were making these incredible gardens. Their whole colony is contained in the stems of this tree species, Duraya hirsuta, that grows in the devil's gardens to attack plants of other species, so other than the plant species that they nest in. The worker ants in these colonies walk along the forest floor, and when they find plants that are not the right species, they crawl up the stems of these plants and they actually inject formic acid into the veins in the leaves in these plants. And that's what kills the plants. This is significant. They're using a herbicide to control what lives and dies in something akin to a timber plantation with ants living inside every single hollow stem. And some people uh, who work in that part of the world have told me they've seen ones that are as big as a soccer pitch. Does the size of those ant colonies indicate that they're actually really old? For some of the large ones, it would likely take them at least several hundred years and perhaps as long as 800 years to grow as large as they are. And this actually matches with what many of the people who live and farm in that part of the world told me is that, you know, I know that that Devil's Garden has been there for a very long time because my father told me about it and he learned about it from his grandfather and so on and so forth. So they would say that those Devil's Gardens had persisted across multiple generations of their families. Do they feed on the same trees as well or are they going outside the garden in order to find appropriate food? They don't leave the garden, but this ant species also tend these tiny little insects called scale insects inside the hollow stems of the trees. They're sort of farming their own food while they're also, you know, maintaining these gardens at their nest sites. So not only are these ants making their very own version of a herbicide to kill the weeds that threaten their houses, they're also tending an insect so they can drink its sweet secretions. Just like the ants and the insects at my place in Australia. It reminds me of something else as well, because there's a dairy just up the road. Excuse me. Excuse me. Hi. Uh, I'm Anne. 
and I work for the ABC. Yep, the Australian Bovine Commission. Yeah, and look, anyway, I was wondering what it's actually like to be milked every day. I mean, do you feel like you're getting a fair deal? Right. What keeps you coming back, do you think, to be milked, you know? Excuse you. <clears throat> oh, don't want to talk? It's weird, you know, like when I come and visit the cows, it's often a time of reflection, I think, because this relationship, this farming relationship, is something that might be described in biology as something more like a mutualism. And it makes you think about what it means to be a farmer and what it means to be farmed and to consume these products. Because in the end, does this cow have much free will? Debatable. And what's keeping these cows in anyway is that ticking. It's an electric fence. And what I'm getting at here is, if you're opportunistically licking an insect's butt for sweet nectar just out there in the wild, is it farming? Or does there need to be a further layer of reliance and interconnectedness of domestication or fencing? Which brings us back around to Bry the fly guy and the ants and aphids that are living near my bird bath. The ants don't want their food source to fly away. So the ants actually secrete specific chemicals from organs in their feet and they walk around the perimeter of the aphid colonies and put the chemicals down there. And it's pretty much creating a fence around these aphids that subdue the aphids and immobilise them so they can't leave. This is the chemical version of that electric fence. The little ants stomp around the aphids with their sleepy perfume so there is no aphid mutiny. And what's even crazier is that the aphids have also evolved a chemical signal. They produce a pheromone that acts as an alarm when they're attacked by other predators. And this alarm tells the ants that, quick, come, come and protect us, be our bodyguards, and help save us. So it's amazing that it's not just a physical relationship they have, but also a really complicated chemical signal one too. The aphids are giving up their freedom and their honeydew for the offer of safekeeping by the ants. It does sound slightly like a mob standover situation. Or, like the aphids, are a herd of dairy cows. So the insects will actually shepherd their aphid mini livestock around the plant. So they'll pick them up with their mandibles as they see fit. And aphids, you know, they grow up and form wings. So these aphids might naturally fly away too. But the ants have also solved this because the chemicals that the ants secrete also deter the aphids from forming wings. They also, if they're getting really impatient, the ants, they'll actually nibble off the developing wings in the aphid nymphs too. So the ants are doing everything in their power to make sure these aphids can't actually move on their own. So I guess you could call them farmed aphids, like farm livestock. <laughs> 
And look, it's all very well to be talking about all these insects. But what about vertebrates? Are there other animals out there farming other animals? Well, the territorial damselfishes that I studied are also known as farmer fishes. Ah, sweet. Jordan Casey is an assistant professor at the University of Texas. Damselfishes are just about everywhere as long as it's not freezing cold. Like on the Great Barrier Reef, where Jordan spent years looking into the damselfish and their peculiar farming habits. Within their territories, they have a pretty thick algae mat. And within that algae mat, they pick out the algae they don't like, which are usually the macro algaes, the bigger algaes, and then they keep the turf algaes, which are very tasty to them. And though these fish are only about four centimetres in length, their aggressive behaviour is legendary. And they are willing to attack anything. I've seen them go for sharks or rays or things that are much bigger than them, but they're really fast and they often target the anus of fishes because it's a very sensitive spot. So they manage to keep other fishes at bay. Okay, that was unexpected. So the reason that they're extremely territorial is because other fishes like their tasty algae. So what they're doing is just trying to protect their food. And we've also recently found that they kind of domesticate a type of tiny little shrimp called mycid shrimps. Some colleagues of mine started observing a lot of these mycid shrimps in damselfish territories. And it looked like they were preferably occupying these territories. So the shrimp are able to find protection because these damselfish are so aggressive. In exchange, the shrimps are pooping on the damselfish territories, and those are crucial nutrients that encourage the algae growth. So it's this nice little farming system, like a farmer with uh, chickens fertilizing a crop, the damselfish and the shrimps and the algae. So we have biodynamic gardeners, farmers that have wheelbarrows built in, internal herbicide factories. We have something akin to dairy farming where the stock are kept for an excretion to be consumed. But what about farming for meat? Well, I have been on the internet, dangerous place, and I've found a reference to a species of ant that eats both the sugary excretions and the insects themselves. But I think that this system is little studied and even the author of that paper didn't want to talk to me about it so maybe there's something awry with that. Maybe the one thing that we can claim at the moment is to be the first meat farmers. But really these species all getting by as they do shows that we humans are probably not as special as we think we are. I guess that we're not really as special as we often think we are. See, Megan Fredrickson, the Devil's Garden researcher and all-round ant lady, agrees. My general research area is on mutualism quite broadly, so how different species come to have these reciprocally beneficial interactions. And we could actually think about humans and their crops as just one of many examples of this kind of interaction. You know, we're benefiting because we're getting food, but in general, the agricultural crops are benefiting too, in a way, because they become so widespread and abundant. You know, we can think about humans and, and, and crops as a kind of mutualism. And then when we look out at the rest of the natural world, we realize that these kinds of beneficial interactions are actually everywhere. 
a lot of ecologists who study mutualism are very interested in whether mutualisms become exploitative and stop being reciprocally beneficial, but actually transition to being parasitisms, for example. And we can think about that certainly as well in interactions between humans and and agricultural crops as well. To what extent are we being mutualists versus exploiters? What the Duck is a production of ABC Science, and I'm Dr Anne Jones. Patria Ladgrove is producer. Script editor is Joel Werner. This program was made on the land of the Wadawurrung people with the help of experts from all over the world. Hello, Beetle. What are you? You want to say hi? Oh, you're pretty. Oh. The beetle just like kamikazied off the tree and acting dead. Making friends, how to win friends and influence beetles. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.